Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. This message is titled, Desperate for Jesus, and was given on September 24th, 2023, as a part of our series called, Knowing Jesus, the Gospel of Luke. It's taught by Pastor Thomas Slager out of Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. Here's Thomas. Good morning, church. How are you guys doing this morning? How many of you loved the feeling of not walking into church all sweaty and stanky this morning? I don't want to speak too soon, but it feels like maybe the end of summer is coming. Uh, as an adult, I love that. I am so glad that summer is almost done. But I remember as a child, like it was the worst. Like the day that summer ended and it was got to go back to school. And, and for us, we grew up, we'd go to West Michigan every summer all summer long. Like we got out of school, hopped in the van, and my parents drove us to Michigan, and we hung out by the lake every single day. Fishing, jet skis, wakeboarding, canoeing, kayaking. Um, We'd go play in the woods and just break stuff and throw axes at things. Like it was just a wonderful, wonderful time uh, and a wonderful way to spend our summer. There was at this lake we were at, it was kind of a smaller lake, maybe a few hundred acres. And back in this one corner, there was this like nasty, swampy bog disgusting, stanky. It was awesome. It's like one of the coolest parts of the lake. And we would hop on wave runners and go over to the bog as soon as we were of age, like maybe not in the eyes of the law, but in the eyes of my parents. So we'd hop on these things at like, I don't know, four and a half years old and go ripping at 16. We were were maybe like 12, 13. I don't know. Uh, we would go over to this bog because the bog had the best turtles, the bog had the best uh, frogs, and like we would just go back there and hunt stuff and find stuff. It was absolutely amazing. And this one summer we discovered back in the bog, there was like these little swamp grass areas that looked like they were stable and they looked solid, but if you stepped in them, then you'd sink. It was not like not quite sinking sand, but some like disgusting boggy swamp. Again, it's totally amazing. So we would step on these things and we would maybe sink to our knees. And if you were lucky, like if you were truly lucky, you could get a lot of momentum and jump and go down to like your hip. And it was just all of that like bubbly swamp gas would start coming up from the surface and it would move from stink to stank. And it was just the coolest way to spend summer as a 12, 13 year old boy. This one day we're back there, me and a couple of buddies, we took one of the wave runners back there and we do the same old thing. And I jump into this, this little swamp, grassy, swampy, boggy grossness uh, and immediately go past my knees, past my hips. And now I'm like, I don't know, like just shy of my chest. And everyone was like, oh yeah, sweet. I was like, yeah, really cool. But then I just kept sinking. Like it just kept, it kept going and, and like funny turned into freaky pretty quick and they're all laughing. And I now have that concern like, yeah, ha, like this, this is so much fun. Uh, and, and I'm like, hey guys, I can't get out. Like I, I need you to help, I need you to help. Ah, so funny, so funny. Like, no, I really need you to help. Uh, and it got down to like my chin and every time I tried to move, I just sank a little bit more to the point where like the muck had come up to my lip line and I lifted a hand in desperation and I was like, dude, I need you. Now, last service, people were like, what happened? Did you make it? I was like, of course I made it. <laughs> I didn't think I needed to tell, tell that part of the story. Like... My friends helped me out. I did not die. I'm still here, okay? Uh, But maybe we've been in a situation, probably not uh, drowning in a nasty, swampy bog, but maybe you've found yourself in a situation of total desperation with a hand held high to heaven and maybe not saying, dude, help me, but something similar. Maybe you look to heaven, hand to heaven, and say, God, 
I need your help. Maybe you've been in that place where it's one of those, men. I've tried everything else. I've sought every doctor I could, talked to every friend I could. I spent every dime I could to fix this situation, to invest in this thing. Every counselor imaginable for this marriage. Like I've done everything I possibly can. And then for whatever reason, it's like the last thing we do, we finally look to heaven and say, God, help me. There's nothing else. That's what we're going to see in our text this morning. We're going to see two stories interwoven. A man named Jairus whose daughter is dying uh, and a woman who has a severe health issue for 12 years. And in their final moments of desperation, turn to Jesus seeking help. And my heart and prayer for us this morning is that our hearts would be in that same place, that we'd raise a hand to heaven, whether we're in the thick of it, in the muck, in the mire of life, or whether we're highest of the highs, life is great, we've got everything going on. Wherever we find ourselves this morning, each and every one of us needs to be desperate for Jesus with the hand to heaven saying, God, would you help me? I'm going to pray in a second, but before I get there, I'm going to invite you, man, bow your heads, close your eyes, ask yourself this question. When was the last time I was truly desperate for Jesus? When was the last time I was truly desperate for Jesus? God, we are desperate for you this morning. God, whether we're in a situation where things are great, man, we are top of the mountain, highest of highs, God, would we still lift a hand to heaven and say, God, I need you. Maybe this morning we find ourselves in the lowest of lows, the bottom of the valley, we've hit rock bottom. God, would that same response happen? Would we turn our eyes to heaven with the hand raised for your help and just say, God, would you help me? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come speak to us this morning, convict our hearts. Open our eyes to see Jesus more clearly, our ears to hear you, our minds to know you, our hearts to love you, and of course our mouths to speak of who you are and what you've done. God, everything we do say, sing this morning is for your glory and your glory alone. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 8 is where we're going to find ourselves this morning. Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. Like I said before, there's two stories, two stories surrounding daughters. Two stories surrounding daughters, and these two stories are going to be interwoven. So we're going to be in one, then bounce to another, and then hop back to the story of Jairus. It starts in verse 40. It says this, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Returned from where? If you were here last weekend, Pastor Jeff taught about um, the man who had been set free from demon possession. There was a legion of demons, and he was kind of this crazed, naked man who lived in kind of like a graveyard, and there was pigs and uh, incredible story. In fact, my son Eli asked Jude after church, because Eli went to 5-6, Jude sat in service with me. Eli asked Jude, Jude, what did you learn about in church today? And this was Jude's recollection of Luke chapter 8. He said there was a naked, crazy guy who lived in a graveyard who drowned a bunch of pigs. So I'd encourage you, if you missed last week, it's a phenomenal story, uh, and there's so much more than that, and, and there's uh, great truth in there. So Jude was close, but he missed it entirely. When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of 
the synagogue. A man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue. So think back in the day, they had the temple. That was the big thing, like up on top, the mountaintop, right? Then they had synagogues, which were local gatherings of God's chosen people, the Jews. So they would meet in a synagogue and there would be a ruler of the synagogue. That's the person who would um, decide who was going to read that morning or the person who was going to decide what text would be read. And they would kind of dictate the activities that would happen during the service in synagogue that Sabbath. And that's who this man Jairus is. Jairus would have been a noble man, an honorable man, a, good, a man of good reputation. He was a man of means. You can see that because he's in this position. But still he's going to come to Jesus because he finds himself in a desperate situation. And falling at Jesus' feet. If you're a Bible underliner, highlighter, circler, highlight that phrase. Falling at Jesus' feet. We're going to see that twice in the text this morning. Falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. Implore uh, is like a plea. I need you to come to my house. I need you. I am desperate for you. Why was he desperate for Jesus to come to his house? For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now, culturally at the time, 12-year-olds, you're pretty much about to get married at that point. Like we're thinking of 12, 13-year-olds of like just entering adolescence and pretty far from adulthood. But at 12 years old, you were nearly considered an adult. So what's the desperate situation? This man's only daughter, who's 12 years old, who's about to enter out into the world and have a family of her own, is dying. And there's nothing he can do. And there's nothing anyone else can do. He falls at the feet of Jesus in total desperation. Let me ask us the question again. Are we desperate for Jesus like this? Are we desperate for Jesus like this? Maybe you find yourself in a situation this morning where you've tried everything else, you've done everything else. Are you desperate for Jesus this morning? Maybe things are great. Highest of highs, mountaintop. Are you desperate for Jesus this morning? This ought to be the heart that we have as believers that we would run to the Father. We would run to the Father because we are desperate for him. So Jesus goes with him. The second half of verse 42, as Jesus went, the people pressed in around him. Now we've got to remember, Jesus is massively popular at this point. People are flocking from all over the place to come see him teach, to come watch him heal people and do miracles and cast out demons. So the crowd is massive and he is at the center of it. Think of it as a main street at Disneyland or Disney World after the fireworks show or like the electric light parade. It's just chaos. 14 kajillion people trying to walk Main Street to exit the park. Maybe it's after a country concert. Maybe it's that feeling you get when you're up by the gate, the very, very front of a rock show. Or maybe you're a psychopath and you go to Costco on a Sunday. It's like that. There's just too many people jammed into one place and Jesus is smack dab in the middle of it. They press around him, enter the next story, the story about this woman. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So what's her desperation situation? She's totally helpless, totally hopeless. She's unclean. She's an outcast. No one wants to go be with her because she's had this discharge of blood for 12 years. Now I've been racking my brain all week trying to figure out what's the best way for us to talk about this together. Uh, And here's the best I can give you. For 12 years, she's wrestled with girl stuff. 12 years straight, no break. And the desperation is, it says that she's gone to doctor after doctor 
after doctor and spent dollar after dollar after dollar. Mark chapter five says her situation wasn't just bad. Her situation was worsening. It's getting worse and worse and worse. She is absolutely desperate. So where does she come? She comes to Jesus. She came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment. Two things real quick. Luke chapter six, verse 19. Why are all these people trying to come touch Jesus? Because they were of the understanding that if we just touch him, we'll be healed. That's what he does for other people. He just walks up and touches them and they're healed. Maybe it works the other way too. If we touch him, then we too shall be healed. It says specifically that she touched the fringe of his garment. We're gonna get nerdy for a second. So stay with me. This fringe of his garment was a thing called a craspadon. A craspadon is what you'd see on our Jewish friends walking around the valley where they have tassels hanging out beneath their shirt. A craspadon is that tassel. It comes from Numbers chapter 15, where if you read the Greek Septuagint, so the Greek version of the Old Testament, I told you, nerdy, hang on. It talks about these craspadon, these tassels, the fringe of this garment. The purpose of the fringe of this garment was for God's chosen people to see the fringe, to see the tassels, and remember that they belong to God and that they need him. It was a constant reminder of their desperation for the Lord in their life. So it's a really cool thing here that we see this woman in a desperate situation reaching out to touch the Lord and grabbing on to the thing that was meant to be a reminder to God's people that they need God. It's really cool and really poetic what's happening here. She reaches out and she touches the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Immediately she's healed. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, uh, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Jesus says, who touched me? Peter essentially says, Jesus, who's not touching you? There are so many people here and everyone is just crowding around. Like every, you, everyone, you're being touched by everyone right now. Meanwhile, Jesus says, who touched me? Peter says, who isn't? Jairus is over here and he's probably thinking, who cares, right? <laughs> Jesus, I thought we were going somewhere. I came to you because I had a need. I fell at your feet in desperation and asked you to work. And you said you would and now you're not. You ever feel this way in your life? Seems like God is moving, but then for some reason, it's like things stall out. Maybe things just completely stop. You're praying for God to do something and he just doesn't do it. You're praying for God to move in your life and all of these distractions keep on popping up. That's what's happening here for Jairus. Jesus, don't you see this distraction? And I think if we were to put on uh, Jesus' perspective, we'd see the things that you and I often see as distractions are actually divine opportunities in life. And that's what happens here. Jairus sees this woman as someone who's getting in the way of God's work and fails to realize that she is God's work. Man, if we could have those same eyes that Jesus has. But Jesus said, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out for me. Jesus isn't caught off guard and he's not shocked. He's not like, wow, this hasn't happened before. Normally I send power out and this is amazing. Somehow just power went out for me. No, he's not shocked. He's not caught off guard. What he's doing is giving this woman an opportunity to stand up. 
He's giving this woman an opportunity to flex her faith and show what's actually there, show the amount of trust that she has. See, we had Jairus come to Jesus in courage, in boldness. He, he fell at the feet of Jesus and implored him publicly, Jesus, I need you to come to my house. We have this woman approaching Jesus in shame, in secrecy. She doesn't want to be seen. She doesn't want to be known. But she has faith that Jesus can heal her. Now when she's healed, Jesus gives, us, gives her an opportunity. Let's see if she'll stand for her faith. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and, second time, falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she touched him and how she had been immediately healed, falling down before him. Man, things are going great in life. Where's the best place we can be? The feet of Jesus. Things are going okay. Not great, not bad. Where's the best place that we can be? The feet of Jesus. Things are going terribly. We're hitting rock bottom. Where's the best place that we can be? The feet of Jesus. Total desperation, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's ugly, each and every one of us should fall at the feet of Jesus with the hand held high to heaven saying, God, I need you. Would you help me? That's what she does once more. She falls at the feet of Jesus. And then it says this. It's like she shares her testimony. She declares in the presence of all the people why she touched him and how she had been healed. Now, each of us have a story, something along those lines. Maybe it's not miraculous healing. Maybe it's not a health thing. But each of us could say, man, for 12 years, I was like this in my life. And I used to be a very selfish man. I used to be a womanizer. I used to be addicted to this or addicted to that. I, I was a woman. I was an alcoholic. We all have these different stories. And we can either just accept the shame and never talk about them, which would have been easy for this woman to do. I mean, to talk about what she struggled with for, for 12 years, this is what I've been dealing with. But she owns it. She says, yeah, this was the reality of my situation. I was like this. I once was this, but God. I once was this, but God. That's the power of our testimony. People may ask you a thousand hard Bible trivia questions. You may not have the answers to any of them. What you do have is a story and a testimony, and you've seen God work in your life. Much like this woman, each and every one of us can share that story goes on in verse 48. And Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Take your Bible. Flip to James chapter 1 real quick. I want to talk about faith. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, it says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. If you lack wisdom, ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given him. But now here's the caveat, but ask in faith. If you're going to ask God for something, ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." 
all too often will lift a hand to heaven and say, God, help me, but I don't really know if you can. God, I need you to show up in really big ways in my life this week, but uh, to be honest, I don't really know if you can. But this is what faith is. It's hopping in with both feet, knowing that the Lord's gonna catch you. Man, you, maybe you remember this as a little kid, or maybe you remember this having little kids, but uh, parents, we've probably all done this in the pool with our kids at one point, where we put them on the edge of the step, right, of the pool, and then we'd say, jump, right? Come on, you can do it. And initially, they're like, mm. like, I know you could catch me. I'm not sure if you're gonna. It's kind of terrifying. It's kind of scary for them. It's a leap of faith. It's a trust fall kind of thing. If I'm going to jump, are mommy and daddy really going to catch me? And that first time with so much hesitation and fear and angst and turmoil in their eyes, they do it and you catch them and they're shocked. Like, I can't believe you caught me. It's like, well, you weigh 14 pounds. Like, of course I'm going to catch you. And then the next time they come up to a different part of the pool and catch me, catch me. And they're a little, little freaked out again, but they jump and you catch them and everything's great. And before long, you're almost afraid to go swimming because this kid's just jumping left and right all over the place. Now you're dodging bodies because they're trying to jump on you. This is how faith works. If we're going to reach a hand to heaven and say, God, help me, it must be done in faith with no doubting. Knowing that, God, you can and you will. You'll help me. You'll show up in my life in really big ways. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Let me ask our question again. Am I desperate for Jesus? Am I desperate for Jesus? In the lowest of lows, am I desperate for Jesus? In the highest of highs, when things are going well, am I desperate for Jesus? That's these people's story. They are desperate for him and he shows up. In big ways. Back to the story of Jairus and his daughter. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Do you hear how they've just accepted the finality of this whole thing? If the daughter had been living, surely Jesus can do something about that. But now that she's dead, that's too much for Jesus to deal with. That's what they're saying. Jesus, you can step into a lot of things, but you can't step into this. Jesus, I've, we've seen Jesus perform some amazing miracles, but this situation in my life, that's too much for him. I mean, I've watched God work miracles in marriages and people's lives uh, all throughout our church, but sometimes it's like, oh, but this one is pretty messed up. Jesus, you can do a lot of things, but I don't know if you can do that. You ever do that? Jam God in your box of who he is, what he can and cannot do? That's what these people have done. Jesus, you can heal a lot of people, but if they're dead, then it's done. Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answers him. Don't fear, only believe, and she will be well. Don't fear, believe, and she will be well. Similar to what he told this bleeding woman Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Daughter, it's your faith. Now he tells Jairus, don't fear, just believe. 
Have faith, trust, everything will be okay. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter in with him except for Peter and John and James. Peter, John, and James were like Jesus' three amigos. Everywhere he went, these three guys went with him. If they were to enter a house, they would be with him. The amount of transfiguration which we see, these guys are with him. Like there's, they were just the inner three, his best friends during his earthly ministry. Peter, John, and James and the father and mother of the child entered the house and all were weeping and mourning for her because they had accepted the reality and accepted the finality of this whole thing. This daughter is dead. There's nothing Jesus can do. But Jesus said, don't weep for she's not dead, but she's sleeping. And they laughed at him knowing that she was in fact dead. She was dead. Sleeping is a euphemism in the New Testament for death. It talks about people who have fallen asleep. It's talking specifically about death. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead, but taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. The story's going to speak for itself. Everyone knows this girl has died, but tomorrow she's going to be walking around town, living proof, a living testimony of who God is and what God can do. I love this. They, they totally accepted the finality of this situation, that Jesus could not step in and work, and all he did was take her by the hand and say, child, arise. See, we tend to dictate what God can and cannot do, but it could be a cough, and it could be cancer. One touch, one word from Jesus, both are gone. You could have a busted up toe. You could have tuberculosis. One touch, one word, they're both gone. Are we desperate for Jesus? Not just when things are bad, but especially for us when things are good. Man, you might, might wake up tomorrow. It might be a big week at work. And we may wake up with this attitude of like, oh, I've been there, done that, I got this. You know, Jesus, you got bigger fish to fry this week. Go ahead and help the people who need it, but I'm good. Man, that is so far from the heart God's called us to have. We need him. Do we not realize how desperate for him we are? Colossians 1 says, Jesus created everything and by him all things hold together. If he stops holding us together tomorrow, everyone's gone. Are we absolutely desperate for Jesus at the mountaintops, in the valleys, and everywhere in between? Do we recognize our need for Jesus, do we recognize daily that we need to lift our hands, lift our eyes to heaven and say, God, I need you. Things are terrible. God, I need you. Things are great. God, I need you. The only reason I'm here in the first place is because God, I needed you and you showed up and you brought me to the mountaintop. I need you. God, I needed you yesterday. God, I need you today. God, I need you tomorrow. Are we desperate? For Jesus. And let me close with three things, three things, three principles that I think will help us live a desperate life for Jesus. Three things that we find in the text here. The first one is this. First principle for desperate living is this. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Okay, that's just a non-Christian thing, right? That's just for those who haven't come to Jesus yet. No, that's a for everyone thing. You don't graduate from Jesus. There's no bigger, better things after Jesus. It's Jesus. 
The Christian life starts with Jesus. The Christian life stays with Jesus. Who are we trying to follow? It's Jesus. We're not trying to be good churchmen and good churchwomen. We're not trying to be good Christians. We're not trying to be good religious people. We're trying to walk with and follow Jesus. What's it look like to be desperate? It's daily dying to ourselves and saying, Jesus, I want to follow you today. I'm going to come to Jesus. The good times, the bad times, the happy times, the sad times, all of them, we come to Jesus. Second thing is this. How do we live a desperate life for Jesus? We trust his timing. We trust God's timing. That's what happened here. You can imagine the frustration that Jairus must have had when Jesus did this little pit stop thing to heal this woman. Now we got a plan here, God. We got something going on here, God. We got work to do. We got work to do, and you're allowing this woman to be a distraction from the work. The woman's not a distraction from the work. The woman is the work. Jairus is the work. For us to be desperate for him means daily we wake up and we say, God, thy will be done, not my will be done. We reach a hand to heaven and say, God, will you help me in this thing I'm going through? And then we trust him daily. You know, if Jairus had his way, Jesus would have showed up quickly when Jairus' daughter was still sick, would have healed her, everything would have been fine. Instead, something way cooler happened because God's timing was different. Instead of watching a sick girl made well, he watched a sick dead girl come back to life. We trust God's timing, knowing that his way is better always. Third thing is this, principle for desperate living is this, pray often. How often? Without ceasing, is what God would say. Pray without ceasing. It's interesting, right here in this story, they say, hey, your daughter's dead. Stop troubling the teacher. Don't trouble the teacher. You know what God tells us to do? Trouble the teacher. Trouble the teacher. Trouble the teacher. God, I feel like you got bigger stuff to worry about. No, absolutely not. Trouble the teacher. Go to him. Pray without ceasing. Rejoice always. Give thanks in all things. At the mountaintop, God, God bend your ear for a minute. God, thank you for bringing me here. The only reason I'm here is because you've brought me here. God, I need you. God, I needed you to get here. God, I need you to stay here. God, I need you tomorrow. We're in the valley. What do we do? We trouble the teacher. We think things are so far gone. Maybe we've tried everything else. We've looked in every, every area of life that we can think of to find fulfillment, to find satisfaction, to find healing. What do we do? Go to Jesus first. We run to the Father. We run to the Father. We trust his timing. And along the way, we constantly trouble the teacher. We pray often. We bring our needs, our thoughts, our pains, everything before him. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes once more. I want to ask that same question. When was the last time you were desperate for Jesus? Is it just the bad times where we feel like we need him? In the good times, do we find ourselves 
in our own pride thinking, I got this. I can do this. Or do we come before him realizing that he is the one that we need? Are we desperate for him? God, help us know what it looks like in our own lives individually to be desperate for you. Father, tomorrow morning when we wake up and feel like it could just be business as usual, life as usual, the first thing would we do would we come to you. We come to Jesus with our eyes on heaven, our hand lifted to heaven and say, Jesus, I need you. Lord, I need you. God, help us trust your plan over our own. God, all too often we think that we know the way things should be. We know the the way the things should go, but God, your plan truly is better. Would we trust it? Would we trust your timing? And God, would we come to you often? Would we trouble the teacher? God, for those who are in this place this morning who... um, who who have hit rock bottom. God, I pray that you would speak to their hearts this morning. Holy Spirit, that you draw them to yourself. They'd find hope, they'd find help, they'd find healing. They'd find love, they'd find satisfaction, they'd find fulfillment at the feet of Jesus. Father, we love you. Give you all the glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.